Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and that makes this X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming, Classics, and more. You can check the show out at X'sForPodcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter. And as for me, you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have an awesome Judgment Day roundup. We're going to take a look at the Axe triptych of Avengers, X-Men, and Eternals, as well as the three issues of Death to the Mutants and a handful of the other tie-ins, including Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red. But I wanted to kick things off by taking a look at some Infinity Comics that sort of surprised me in a really cool way, and I was really excited to see it. The Marvel Love Unlimited Infinity comic recently released The Loves of Wolverine, and I was so excited to see that because not only has Mariko been seeing a really phenomenal reinvigoration, not just into the Marvel Universe, but into our show, thanks to The Incredible Demon Days by Peach Momoko, Zach Davison, and Ariana Mar. But we've always had a thing for Mariko on this show, especially back when the show began, covering classic stories from the 1970s and 80s where Mariko really shined and this Love Unlimited series has been a really pleasant surprise for me because I think a lot of fans don't realize that Marvel had a really long history of being a romance title company and we talk a lot about how comics are really over dominated by the superhero market and it's true superheroes make up a good portion of the comic sales understanding from a cultural perception but there is such a wealth of other storytelling in comic books and if you expand your definition of comic to include manga then you know manga greatly outsells comic books and it is a staggering number of people that read manga in Japan compared to read comics in America it's a very different market it's a very different world and to sell an entire company short and to say that they have nothing to offer but superhero stories well number one would make Alan Moore cry but number two does Alan Moore have tears I'm not sure but the other side of it is there's more than just punch em ups and something that Marvel was famous for for a long time with their romance comics. We've talked a bit about the World War II era comics and even the Atlas comics that followed, but I don't know that we've had the opportunity to really dive into what makes so many of these romance comics so classic and so famous. They gave us some characters that still appear today, like Millie the Model, who was in a recent Love Unlimited story, but also Patsy Walker, Hellcat, who might be better known as Trish from the Jessica Jones series on Netflix. Now, Marvel Romance titles were a major part of their 60s relaunch into superheroes. Actually, the Marvel Months Omnibus line is an omnibus line that has released a handful. There's August 61, June 62, and July 63, with July 63 slated for June of 2023 release. And these republish the complete series of titles from that time. And if you take a look at August 1961, you can see that there actually were a wealth of these romance titles. We had Kathy 13. Now, I can't imagine it's chocolate, 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 ack Kathy, but, you know, we can dream. Life with Millie number 13, Patsy Walker number 97, Linda Carter student nurse number two, Millie the model number 105, Love Romances number 96, Teenage Romances number 84, Patsy and Hetty number 79. It's not like there was like a very limited number. Of course, by the time we look at July 1963, it is a bit different to consider. 
While there is still, there is now modeling with Millie, number 25, Patsy and Hetty, number 90, Patsy and Hetty annual, number one, Patsy Walker, 109. We see a significant number reduced. We see a significant reduction in the number of stories with Millie the Model 117 closing out the contributions from the romance titles here. And it's really interesting because as something more popular came along, it just sort of erased that other thing that was there just as important. And, you know, that represented female readership of comics in so many ways. It was a competitor for the Archie line of books in that it dealt with more mundane, real-to-life situations featuring characters that echoed who the readership was. And it's really great to see Marvel treating that era with respect. Now, it's really interesting that it would feature a superhero in many of the stories, with the first story featuring Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, the second story focusing on Viv Vision, the third story seeing the return of, of course, Millie the Model, super exciting. And now we have Wolverine with The Loves of Wolverine. This reminds me very much of earlier this year when the X lives and 10 deaths or 10 lives and X deaths, however it works out, of Wolverine had the life of Wolverine tie-in Infinity comic, which I found to be just as enjoyable an experience. And it's something that was really terrific because it's hard for Marvel to always justify the printing of some of these titles. It's not that the idea of going back and making the history of comics much less complicated is a bad thing, but when you think about the paper shortage and the need to move these books, and people have already bought them once, it's hard to get them to buy it in like a prose snapshot, but using the Infinity format to explore those ideas in a new way, showcasing fascinating storytelling, and by putting it in this scroll method, it becomes something different than it was before. This is a really cool way to do some tie-in elements and to bring a story together. And I think one of the big complaints we've had about the underuse of Infinity Comics is it feels oftentimes like they're not working to build the Infinity Comics in in a way that is unavoidable. I feel as though as much as X-Men Green has developed its own kind of canon unto itself, I'm not seeing the X-Men Green characters really get referenced or pop up in the regular titles in a way that sometimes makes those books feel less than or less important. Now, obviously, it shouldn't all be a continuity game. That is inherently gatekeepy. But these stories wind up feeling a little under-celebrated and a little under-important when they're off in the Infinity La La Land. And one of them that comes to mind, an Infinity story that sort of got overlooked, was the Kare Andrews Amazing Fantasy Prelude Infinity comic. Now, I do think Amazing Fantasy by Kare Andrews in general did get sort of skipped over, but it's so interesting to me that this story kind of even escaped my initial purview. I've meant to cover it for the show a thousand times, and I've said, oh, I'll cover it when I eventually do Amazing Fantasy as an arc, and it will do it as a trade-waiting thing, and I never really got around to it because it's very much its own entity. It's in a separate universe, and there really is no good way to tie it into most of our coverage, except when I took a look at it again today, when I was looking over my notes to cover Love Unlimited. I realized that this story is, in many ways, about Logan interacting with the ghost of having failed and lost Mariko, and we see him mourning at a monument to her, and he repeatedly pours out his heart to say that he feels he's failed her, and that he wishes he could injure himself physically hard enough to show her how much he's aching. I maybe don't love that idea for it, you know, there's not a whole
whole lot that I think pain must have to be associated with showing love. But, you know, beyond that, something about Kari Andrews' storytelling is he's a very grand storyteller and he has these very big visions. His Iron Fist had some very big ideas and some incredible visuals. And I sometimes do feel that perhaps he's a stronger visual storyteller than maybe a narrative storyteller. But I feel his stories always come together in a really clear way. And the Infinity comic, Prelude for Amazing Fantasy, is definitely one of those stories. Now, it also features incredible letters by VCs Joe Sabino, who places the letters in such a way that they perfectly fill out the space using color and breaking out of the bubble at all the right times. Something that really supports this book so well is Kare Andrews draws really hideously, grotesquely deformed muscle really beautifully. It's a hallmark of his storytelling, and I think it comes across really well in this story, especially when we see Logan shirtless, filled with arrows covered in blood, pressed against the monument reading Mariko. It really makes his body look deformed in a way that allows us to sort of surrender outside of this sense of who Logan would normally be. And that's even kind of what we were talking about with 10 lives and 10 deaths and life of Wolverine. We've been exploring the multitude of who Wolverine is. And I think you can also hear that in our coverage on Mondays, where we're exploring the totemic symbology of characters. We did an extended thing about how there's three pretty major female versions of Wolverine, and, you know, two of them being major is kind of a joke, but they're major to us. There was a what if, what the character, Logana, Wolverina. Then, of course, there was Wild Thing from the MC2 universe. Now we have the incredible Laura as Wolverine, previously X23. And they represent elements of who Wolverine is, and they carry those themes across, even if they're female versions or versions that aren't quite the same person. And I think when you're trying to capture the vibe of a character and you want to deliver an idea of who they are, what Kari Andrews does here is he takes the visual elements of Wolverine that matter, the sort of hypermusculature, the hairiness, elements of the mask, and he contrasts them with visuals that really support the violence, right? Because that's what this story is trying to tell. Wolverine is being attacked by what seem like yokai-style zombie samurai. And by using these gray figures coming at him with these not-quite-human features, we're able to be reminded of how Wolverine himself is still a man who is a beast fighting beasts. There's a really powerful transformation of the fact that Wolverine should kind of always be outclassed. That's something that I feel we sometimes lose out on by having Wolverine always be the best there is at what he does. No, fuck that. Sometimes he's not so great at it. You know what I mean? And that can be the excitement. That can be the energy that propels you through the story, that makes you care more about who Logan is. That can be the excitement. And I think that's something that Kari Andrews nailed really beautifully here. Of course, when we see Wolverine being attacked by this giant demon creature and we see him ripping through it, that does also bring him to mind. If you are a deep Wolverine reader, there's a lot of Wolverine hunts, but he doesn't hunt to kill. He hunts because it is the art of the hunt and you don't kill things you don't have to kill. And it comes up a lot that Wolverine like fights bears and you know, it's not always a thing that I think follows through on the logic of the character as this respectful of nature hunter. And when we give into those visualizations, instead of having a deeper thought for them, I think we can sometimes lose sight of the character 
character is meant to be nuanced and have depth and show complexity so that he only kills this creature to get out of it after it eats him is really important. I also want to give a huge note to Kare Andrews for the Logan as the chompers are coming down on him, the chomp sound effect by Joe Sabino, and the beautiful melding of the snicked and the sort of bursting through the creature by giving the creature these very insect-like eyes. It also sort of softens the him killing this giant white fluffy guy, right? Wolverine meets this blue creature, and I have to be honest, I didn't actually understand who this blue creature was meant to be a couple of times that I read it, but once Wolverine describes himself to this blue woman who goes from a beautiful sexy creature to a horrifying monster as ravenous, I came to understand this is sort of a really interesting interpretation of Mystique. Now, ultimately, the story ends that you should just go read Amazing Fantasy with a World War II Captain America, a Red Room Black Widow, a Teenage Spider-Man, and it's a really exciting story. And, you know, we will cover it in trade waiting here. But I wanted to just sort of stand out and say, you know, we're talking a lot on the show about how Infinity Comics should matter more and we should see something come of them. And here was an opportunity where Marvel said, what if this Infinity Comic ties into the series that we're also producing? And I feel that perhaps that sort of initial, it didn't really click, had a little bit to do with the project, a little bit to do with shipping delays, a little bit to do with, you know, COVID things. But ultimately, I do think that attempts to build into bigger narratives, like with that title, Amazing Fantasy, it was a really cool idea. I sometimes wish that the Marvel Voices releases, the official releases, were just sort of like bi-weekly drops on Unlimited that get collected in a nice edition. It's not that I don't like going out and supporting voices. I love it. But I would rather support it in like a prestige format where these stories feel a little bit less gate-kept away. I think it's terrific that we have so many unlimited stories that feature like Captain America and some of the Avengers books. And they're all really good stories. I'm really excited about it. But I do wonder what determines what gets published as Avengers Unlimited and what gets published as like what it's nonstop Avengers or Avengers no breaks, all hits, no skips, whatever it is. Really exciting and I'm looking forward to reading it. But I don't always understand the way the line is presented. Whereas with Love Unlimited, number 19, The Loves of Wolverine, part one, I actually really have a sense of why this is where it is. Now, this was brought to us by Sean Kelly McKeever, art by Diogenes Neves, colors by Andre Mosa, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar, who I think might now hold the record for most appearances of Mariko under her belt in the last five years, having done this and Demon Days. I do want to point out that we have a few things that are worth discussing. Number one, Mariko Yoshida was originally introduced back in the pages of X-Men 118 in November 1978. She is the daughter of Lord Shinigan, the leader of Clan Yoshida. He is a big bad guy in the Logan mythos. He's a Japanese crime boss. And Mariko's cousin is Sunfire. Sunfire has been a huge topic of conversation in the last couple of years. I'm really grateful that we've seen that sort of development, that furthering of that character. We felt very much that Sunfire has always been treated as othered among a group of others, and that's really an ugly thing to do to a character who has been for so many years the sole representative of Japanese X-Men in a way that is really exclusionary 
of you know Eastern readers in a way that we really need to work on as a company, right, or as a fandom to push the company that we need to work on as a fandom to help push and encourage the company. So one of the things that also comes to mind is that Mariko's half brother is the Silver Samurai, and he's a character that we all kind of go back and forth on. You know, sometimes we love him, sometimes he's a little problematic. It is tough for me to make sense of the fact that currently Mariko is the Scarlet Samurai. This was introduced in the pages of Old Man Logan number 31 from November 2017. I understand that characters don't need to stay dead or anything, and I don't know that Ed Brisson and Mike Diodato, along with Frank Martin on colors and Corey Pettit on letters, really did anything outside of the scope of comics. By resurrecting Mariko, I think in some ways they've actually done her more of a service. This has come up a lot in our discussion of Electra recently, where oftentimes our discussion of these characters being sacred and not being messed with a bull, right? Like they're too protected. They can't be interacted with. What we do is we wind up selling that character's experiences short. So Mariko was killed by male writers after influencing a generation of non-male readers. And now there's an opportunity for new writers to come in, having been those non-male readers, and do something new with this character. You know, Peach Momoko saw how little Mariko there was and saw it as an opportunity to build into that narrative along with Zach Davison and this title's Ariana Mar. So I really do appreciate seeing Sean McKeever on this title. Sean McKeever did some amazing work with Sentinel back in the day, did some strong work with Mystique, and the art on this is so sharp. It would be really great to see more female and non-male writers working on Mariko, but of course, more native Japanese or writers of Japanese heritage working on the character. This would be terrific, and I'm really looking forward to it. The story we got, though, is incredibly charming. And one of the things that makes this story so charming is the blend of photorealism elements with a very cartoony style that's presented here. There's really terrific technique that sets some of this in comic while adding levels of realism. Wolverine's hands are downright erotic holding that bottle early on in the story. Story. And then when Mariko comes in, the shine on her hair, the solidness of the movement, it really creates a visual experience as though you're there. Some of the olfactory senses even start to come in. You can imagine that this is what Ratatouille smells like. I mean, the movie, not the dish. And the story tells the first date of Wolverine and Mariko. And I'm really glad to have an opportunity to see this moment. And part of why I'm excited to see this moment is because there's there's no real stakes being changed here. And their first date has maybe been referenced somewhere before. Maybe there's a side story, a side book somewhere, somewhere along the way that I don't remember that tells this that it's that kind of magical interpolation of the first date. Sometimes I say my first date with my husband was this group hang that I thought was a date that wasn't, or I say it was this study date that I thought was like a date, but it was just a study date. But like, you know, as we tell the story, you know, and he'll say, oh, well, that was technically our first date this like there's a magic to it and having this be their first date this time in these gorgeous saturated purples browns and reds the way the oranges transition from the table into the walls there is a really clear sense that this was designed with the visual medium of the infinity comic line in mind and that so much of this borders on superhero-y but not quite there is a fight for the table that ultimately turns into 
nothing. Logan doesn't lose his cool and slug this guy out. Instead, he just heads out with Mariko, and they attempt to have a great time outside when there's a thief. Logan is prepared to do what it takes to save the day when Mariko just smashes the guy's head in with a sign. It is incredible. And Mariko ultimately is like, I'm going to leave for Japan tomorrow. You should come with me. Something that blew my mind about this story is the way that it creates so much agency for Mariko instead of Wolverine. While I understand this is Wolverine's story, his love here, Mariko, is the main part of the story that receives not just our attention, but the focus of who's driving the agency and the action. At most, Logan chooses not to interact in situations instead of directly becoming involved. It's that sort of thoughtfulness that does mean that when we're not getting a writer who is a woman or a writer who is Japanese telling us these stories, there's still consideration being put in to make the depiction a realistic moment for this character and not a clever use of a prop to further Wolverine's story. It'll be really interesting to see what other loves of Wolverine we cover if we continue just to cover Mariko, which I would be fine with. You know, 10 issues. 10 issues of Mariko, please. But maybe we'll get Jean. Maybe we'll get Scott. I don't know. Maybe we'll get a reasonable love interest for Wolverine. I will settle for some weird hate fucking with Sabretooth in the Hellfire Club bathroom. You know, Assault on Weapons Plus, it, it affected us all very differently. And my main concern with these incredible Infinity Comics is that not enough people see their value and not enough people are taking the time to interact with them. I know a number of readers on our show, even our contributors, say it's hard to make me sit down and stare at the screen more when I have to stare at a screen all day. And the volume of these stories that are being published at this point is astronomical. The X-Men Unlimited series is on 57 motherfucking issues, plus the Hellfire Gala Confessionals one-shot, plus we could even throw in last year's Hellfire Gala one-shot with the people who didn't win's little comics. You know, we can say we're at about 60 issues for that motherfucker. And it doesn't look like it's slowing down or stopping. We've seen a number of those republished in physical print. It really is about a balance because I know I'm the one who said, oh yeah, you know, republish them is a good thing. But sometimes when I think about it, I do know that readers say, hey, it was already published. It's old now. I kind of don't care. If I really wanted to read it, I'd read it online. So I hope that everybody who hears this does take the time to take a little break from so much judgment and take a look at Love Unlimited. The story was just a nice way to remember Mariko. She is such a tremendous character with such a wealth of worth and a depth of self that is so worth investigating time and time again, seeing her come back in this way, a a classic adventure that kind of doesn't change the stakes, but reminds us why the stakes mattered all those years ago. It's just so special. And speaking of stakes, Judgment Day. We have a number of Judgment Day looks coming your way. That's Death of the Mutants 1 through 3, Axe Avengers, X-Men and Eternals, X-Men Red 7, Immortal X-Men 7, We got a lot, and I hope you enjoy all of it. We love bringing this show to you three times a week, every week, Mondays, where we investigate the, like, totemic qualities of characters and their multiple iterations across lines of the Marvel Universe. Wednesdays and Fridays, we bring you more of the same content that you love. Now, today's episode isn't quite a test balloon, but it's more reflective of where the show is going. In an effort to make a better product for you all the time, we're going to be focusing on bringing you complex looks at situations. Now, that's not always going to mean a full arc or six or seven issues of a run in particular, but we're going to be taking a look at multiple titles at once, examining how they come together, and it's a further evolution of what we've always been doing, but it's something we've seen is really reflected well in our audience interaction. 
collection. And we hope that this is the kind of material that you guys are looking for that you can't find elsewhere. And that's going to be coming your way Wednesdays and Fridays from X's for Podcast. As always, you can find the show at X's for Podcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter. Me, I'm Nico, and you can find me at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. So enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, Infinity Comics are comics too. Judge them not. And we'll see ya. Hey everybody, it's Nico. That means this is Exodus for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's Chronos Gaming Classics and more. Hey everybody, it is Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse where you can find me judging mutants in their fashion sense. Kate, you get a big thumbs down except for your beautiful red queen outfit, which is thumbs up. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx, talking poetry with the hex. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Hey everybody, I'm Jake. You can find me, I guess, inside one of the pocket dimensions of the machine that is Earth, uh, and also on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. that's O-H-Mega Sentinel. And that leaves me as Kevo. You can find me over on the socials at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, and we hope you survive your judgment. And of course, you can find all of us at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter, and I could not be more excited than to talk about judgment with this incredible crew we have been doing eternals forever we have been doing judgment day and you know with an event this big with an event this size it can be so easy to get sort of lost in the tie-ins and i feel like that's a little bit what happened that kind of broke the 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 ride of this crew covering it all together so it only seemed right that we all come together at the end to discuss a number of the tie-ins that were written by kieran gillen and in specific today we're going to be taking a look in part or in whole at death to the mutants one through three, Axe, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, and Immortal X-Men number seven. Death to the Mutants, as well as all of the other titles, were written by Kieran Gillen, but Death to the Mutants one had pencils and inks by Gio Villanova and colors by Di Holima, one of his final appearances at Marvel before his tragic passing. Issues two and three saw Gio Villanova accompanied by Alex Guaramis and Eric Arseniega on colors with letters by Travis Lanham. Now the Axe one-shots had a bit more of a crew with pencils and inks by Federico Vincentini on Avengers, Francesco Mobley on X-Men, and Pascal Ferry on Eternals, Colors by Dean White on Avengers, Frank Martin on X-Men, Matt Hollingsworth on Eternals, with Corey Pettit on Avengers Letters, and Clayton Cowell on X-Men and Eternals Letters. Okay, we're almost done. Immortal X-Men number seven, Drawn Like Pornography by Lucas Vernick. Thank you. Colors by David Curiel and letters by Clayton Cowles. And one of the biggest joys I have in discussing all of this with you guys is having an opportunity to kind of take a look at the multifaceted place we all find ourselves in. And I would love to get a real sense of how everybody's felt about their crossover journey thus far. Kevo, this is your first live crossover in history, which as your husband is like marriage boner for me. And I would love to know, I know in the car this morning, we said we love the event, but we kind of hate reading it. (laughs) And I would love to know where you're at with this book. 
Yeah, you know, that's something that I was already aware of about myself going into this, so I anticipated it. Uh, It's just, it's very fatiguing. It's not that the story isn't still good or engaging, but, you know, it's almost November now. We started this in May. I'm tired, and it's all very confusing and forever-taking, and I think I'm just more someone who is suited to trade. One of the comparisons that I made is to how far serialized storytelling has come, even in prose form, or like the original basis of novels was printing them in magazines and stuff, and then collecting them after the fact, similarly to the way comics are collected in trade. I'm more a trade guy, and that's okay. I'm not saying death to monthly comics by any means. It's just, I I don't have the attention span. It's just a little too confusing for me as part of it, I think. There's so much, and it's hard to tell what is integral and what's not, especially as you're living through it. I think I could potentially be the counterpoint person where I enjoy the monthly reading, and yet I still actually, for this particular crossover, kind of agree with Kevo and have had a similar experience. This might have been a really good time to experiment with some kind of digital release, like doing something akin to the Netflix format of releasing a lot of stuff at once. There's just, there's so much, and it really is a lot to ask to have, because it's very clear that they want people buying all these books. This doesn't feel like, you know, fun supplementary stuff a lot of this time, especially, you know, looking at Death to the Mutants 1 through 3, which originally felt kind of unimportant, but also really important because it really was the continuation of Eternals, which we all, I think, really liked. For the first two issues, it was kind of I was, where are they going with this? And then the third one sort of blew me out of the water in a lot of ways. It really is just so much dilution of ideas book to book because there are so many and the time frame is so long. So even though I tend to be somebody who likes a crossover and, you know, likes to spend the summer anticipating the story and, you know, waiting to get to the end, this one was so big and it was so much and it has gone on so long. And there's still parts I haven't read yet. Like I haven't read the Fantastic Four part. I appreciate them putting out this much content. It's really cool. I don't know if it's all necessary, but I wish they'd gotten a little more experimental with the way they were releasing it so that maybe we could all feel like we were in on it a little bit. Some of the tie-ins that aren't maybe as important that are part of the other titles like the Spider-Man one, which was amazing, and like the Captain Marvel one was pretty good. There hasn't been as much consistency between those tie-ins and what Regenerator does. The end of Spider-Man, the, you know, the Celestial God does something totally different than he's done in any other thing, and I'm like, he could do that. So um, I think some of it got diluted by the tie-ins that aren't as important, but that's with any event Marvel has feels a little bit like the first Hellfire Gala that we got where there are so many issues that are sort of reinventing moments that have happened already in the book that I feel like we're reading a lot of like double printed stuff and it's kind of like think back to Ten of Swords when they had the you know the Twilight Sword panel come in and like every two issues you know it just feels like there, there is some repeated stuff that maybe yes was expanded upon and the issue was expanded upon but it seems really redundant in a 
it's a long series i'm like i'm entertained and the writing it pops enough and keeps me hooked enough that i'm like okay yeah i i'm i'm here for the character work i'm here for the witty turns of phrase i'm here for the machine that is earth so i'm still enjoying the event even as i see that there's a lot of filler material even as i see that like it, it honestly to me could have been two different events like the eternals war with uh krakoa and the progenitor feel like two very separate things now and i would have been fine if we had had like another five to ten issues of eternals and x-men just as a as a tie-in story together that led up to the progenitor story where they did the war but making that be a required part of the event made the event longer i think really contributes to this fatigue that we're all feeling at this point because we're like 30 some issues deep and and it's still going on and you know we want our we want our winter story damn it i really like judgment day i'm really into it that said i feel like most of the tie-ins have been really good and the ones that have tied into like key character moments and like unraveling and getting further into the psyches of these characters have been really really good but that's the best part about this crossover for me and the part that really drags it down is the fact that we're seeing every there's like there's like seven things that happen in Judgment Day, and we see all seven of those from like three or four or five different issues perspectives from different characters or from different times or from different, you know, like locations as they happen. And that has created a lot of confusion for me as I'm reading this because I keep seeing the same things happen and I don't remember which comics they happen in. And I it's hard to remember the order of events when I see things that I thought happened a few months ago because we started reading about them then but I see them from another perspective later. So I think, I, I don't know, I think X Judgment Day will read a lot better in retrospect when you're just reading through each individual series and you come across it or when you read it in like a collected volume or it's just the miniseries. But for now, I'm, I've been really enjoying the whole thing, but I have trouble with the sheer volume of perspectives on a, a generally a small amount of events, even though there have been a lot of twists and turns. There's just like, there's just a few major things that are being done. And I think it's really important to note that none of us are dissatisfied with anything to do with like the overall story or mm-hmm. interconnectivity or anything like that. We're just lamenting that it's it's a lot to have to do decompressed over several months. Yeah. Also a lot to have to buy. Wednesday was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. It was really brutal. The counterpoint to that is that, like, maybe there are some issues with connecting with some of the plots, but it's a little difficult to even get to that part because of this, like, wealth of material to get through and to hold in check for times that you can have conversations. Like, and I'm not even talking about us covering it for the show, but, like, when I stop to speak to one of you guys just, like, online or with some of you in person, like, about my feelings about what's going on or what happened in a particular issue that came out in a week that is connected to issues that came out two months ago you know maybe it's a smart strategy maybe by doing it like this it really makes it so that we can't be like is this actually bad which i don't think it is i think it's awesome <laughs> but like, <laughs> i think it's really great but i am kind of unable to focus on that quality you know what else kind of throws me for a loop is i know so like this is three months worth of publication history and just somewhere in my mind i know that next summer the x-men office is gonna do another hellfire gala like <laughs> a year has happened between stories again and i'm like what yeah the decompression of this event is ridiculous 
It is wild pants. That's not that's not a bad thing that like three months of publication history and like a hundred comics take place over twenty four hours or so. But like I just reread all through Sword and X Men Red, and I'm realizing that like from X Men Red number one to like now is probably like a week, and then like mm-hmm. from Immortal mm-hmm. X Men number one to now is given a few rewrites of history somewhere along the way, maybe like three days. Like <laughs> so, like it's really mm-hmm. been like blowing my mind trying to keep in mind that like things are moving at such a rapid clip when it feels like we've been here forever already you know and i'm having that problem with like organizing the event in my head i can't get over how this is one crossover something that we've lamented a number of times is sort of the sense that some of these titles fail in their attempt to deliver you know something happens in issue one and in issue eight you're still dealing with whatever happened in issue one but i in some ways kind of can't figure out how this is still that crossover that started with death to the mutants Mm -hmm. because when i went to reread a lot of this material to prepare for this episode something i found really hard to reconcile is how death to the mutants was one of the things that this book was pitched with this book was pitched with oh also the avengers are going to be versus the eternals and that has nothing to do with what we're actually dealing with it feels like a separate a totally separate event like it was the lure to get us into the like the real event and it could have happened as a plotline within those books, a crossover plotline within those books that people who want to stick with the Eternals storyline and the X-Men storyline will have as context going into Judgment Day, but you don't need. It feels like there's still a there's still a take it or leave it to this event, but it also feels like it could have been several events. So this is a, an Avengers X-Men Eternals event, right? Like Avengers number 60 as a axe tie-in? Absolutely was, not. Was was uh, was a uh, okay issue. I, I liked it. I don't like, I don't need a focus on Hawkeye, who has been nowhere <laughs> in the Avengers. <laughs> Thank you! What the fuck was that? Can I just, uh, can I drop a thunderbolt right now? <laughs> Missed the point of the assignment. Seriously. That felt like MCU synergy, honestly. <laughs> MC unification score one, yeah. readers score wallet zero. <laughs> Oh, so funny. that was that was the that was the one issue of this uh, that I was like, R- really, okay, really, this is who this is what you're presenting us in Avengers number six. Okay, <laughs> who, wait, who wrote that issue? Aaron. Aaron. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. But Jason uh, Aaron doesn't write Hawkeye. No. Uh, <laughs> just this issue. <laughs> 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 All right. Gonna run it in Thunderbolts. Why didn't they just write that in Thunderbolts? Choices. I love that you're bringing up like why are people in certain books because you made a really good point about how perhaps in the pages of Spider-Man Zeb Wells didn't interact with the event the way I would have expected but something I've noticed is that Kieran Gillen has been interacting with everyone's characters (laughs) in like great effort he makes references to Avengers 1 million BC and he makes references to things going on in Cy Spurrier's Way of X and so much of his Mm -hmm. characterization builds on other people's storytelling it's something that I think makes a really there's I'm trying to find a way that does not in any way imply any other form of storytelling is bad but when you're a storyteller who's like no this is my plan I'm not going to deviate that's really cool and I love that sort of unwavering sense of who you are but like one of the things that makes the Kieran Gillen book so beautiful is the way that it's a tapestry and it's woven
woven together from threads from so many other things effortlessly. I mean, I'm sure the man goes to great lengths to work to make it beautiful, but he makes it look effortless. It's the Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire thing. They both danced unmistakably perfect, but like Gene Kelly made it look sexy. Fred Astaire made it look athletic. And like, there's something about the Gregory Hines doing tap dancing, sort of sensuous aesthetic of how Kieran Gillen makes me feel like I'm reading a universe that I can only get from Kieran Gillen. But if I can tie it back to the previous thing we were talking, I, the problem is, yeah, it's too good because when we started with this idea that before the event even started, when we started getting hints that this was going to be the mutants versus the Eternals because the mutant origin was problematic for the Eternals, that was a really cool setup and even cooler when we found out that that's not really a thing. Druig is just trying to consolidate power. Really fucking cool to me. And it became this really, I got really interested in the power play and the fact that he was using this kind of horrible racist trope to like galvanize his people because that's not familiar to the world at all. I even like how the progenitor and Ajax work like falls into all that, but we really lost that political struggle really quickly. And I was super into that. And what we got after that, the conflict, the judgment, really cool to me. Maybe a thing I personally wouldn't want focused on as much, but I'm still super into it. I'm seeing a lot of really cool stuff. But Druid got deposed so fast, and we just completely dropped that storyline. I mean, you know, even the concept of, like, what if our glorious protector angel people get super racist and weird? It's, a, <laughs> it's like, totally out there and such a good concept. And Kieran Gillen is exactly the type of person that I want to see writing it. But we did have to move on pretty fast to get to the big explodey god. And now I'm just kind of yearning to know, like, can we ever return to that political drama? Or did we just have to kind of, yeah. Because I I feel like the point you're making is it's not that the story they went with is bad, but it's not the comedy they intended to tell at the beginning of the week. It didn't feel like it, yeah. They told us that it was going to be this other thing. And it's why even from the beginning... I had been saying, you know, it, it's not A, V, X, V, E. It's Axe. And that ultimately meant it is Avengers, X-Men, and Eternals united against Judgment Day. And that's well, great. But we sort of had been told it was going to be this different conflict at the beginning. I, I think that this is a really, the whole story is a really interesting kind of commentary on hypocrisy, though. I mean, consistently throughout, you know, starting with the, the political conversation and looking at the small hypocrisies of the people who are, you know, declaring themselves against mutants, and then each individual having to kind of face their shit. It's compelling in, you know, a place and a time where the world just feels like, you know, like there are so many factions at odds with each other, you know, maybe it should be less about the ideology of a faction and more about, you know, how the fuck am I living my life and treating the people around me? That feels like the through line. It's so big and so expansive. I almost wish rather than being a crossover event this was like kind of a a micro era like how we had the age of heroes and like maybe if we just agreed that you know for the most of 2020 like for a year basically or nine months even like this was the era of judgment and we would all look back that basically everything around this time was touching on this even if it wasn't all like integrally connected to the event so like a dc event (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know they're the age of apocalypse kind like more like age of apocalypse i guess but like you know it's 
the idea of we haven't had an era shift in a long time when we were getting one every two years how big this event is and how long it's gone on it feels like it's gotta be more than a crossover I mean, Judgment Day does feel like it's not going away at the end, weirdly enough. Like, I know a lot of the times we have thought that it was going to go away, but the closer and closer we get to the end, I feel like it's leading directly into the Sins of Sinister, which feels like it's not going to go away for a while. It, it weirdly feels like it's going to stick now, which is not something I would have felt like towards the middle of this crossover at all. I don't know what exactly changed about the finality. Maybe it's seeing the solicits coming up. I have not cared at all about any of the various subplots of, like, turning off the firewalls of the Eternals, turning off no i can't remember what happened where every time they went into the machine or what they were doing. I don't, like none of that like honestly except for the plan in immortal x-men number seven but it's just staged so fucking well and put together it's it's a little intricate machine and i love that issue i really enjoy the character arc that we get the machine that is earth a new character that we're already having to say goodbye to in such a heartbreaking way yeah. all i could think of was oh this machine doesn't doesn't know deep space nine anymore oh <laughs> I was so pumped. I was like, he doesn't have a preference for Captain. That was what uh, Festus was crying about most at the end. That was a truly heartbreaking issue for the narrator that we just met. Well, and I think that's one of the things that makes the book so compelling that like Steve, like you pointed out, we just lost a narrator and there's an intimacy to a narrator. Yeah. There's a a personal bond. Like I say a lot that writers and audiences have a sacred bond of trust. We're talking about these that... characters together when we're reading. The exactly. Yeah. They're in this podcast with us. And to take that narrator from us divorces us, our pilot character almost and you know it's the second season of mary hartman mary hartman not having mary hartman and it's really a concept that i think we're gonna have to reckon with death of the narrator of the experience it's a really different kind of shift when you contrast earth the character who we've all fallen in love with with the narrators of immortal x-men which every week it's one of the council and that has been really awesome it is in a good way they're a little bit disposable like we get a lot out of it but we don't ever lament going on to the next character i don't think i've ever been like oh, i just wish it could be you know even destiny who i adore I, I wish it could be destiny the whole time really did fall in love with the machine that is earth and it, it, i think it was the best thing about death to the mutants and how it was able to wrap up everything that we got in eternals that final act of defiance against the progenitor and the vernacular voice that it has that just makes you feel like this is an intelligence that has grown to become a person that you can talk to today. Um, I Yeah, just really beautiful. And a, a lot of things like this are leading me to hope that there's some kind of reversal, that we're not losing everybody. But that's a tight rope to walk because some of these sacrifices are a little too big to just say, like, oh, we, we're done. Psych. Yeah. yeah, with the death of the machine that is Earth, that for better lack of a word, data page where he's just like, uh, you live, you learn. I lived and learned. And then he's like, I love you. Goodbye. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to miss you so much. Mm -hmm. And then, like, 
that like that death and the death of Magneto makes me really think you can't rewalk this back by using a Moira clone because then you erase all of that. But I'm just it's gonna set up some sort of interesting new paradigm for Marvel. So like this is one of those events where I think like House of M, we're really only gonna be able to see what we think of this event through the after effects. Yeah, Al Ewing has been setting up Magneto's death in X Men Red since well before Judgment Day got started and underway. So I I feel like it's meant to stick around for a while. And I honestly I think it should as much as Magneto's like my favorite character and X Men Red is very good with him in it. But like that's the most satisfying superhero death I've maybe ever read. Yeah, agreed. And I think, yeah, Kieran Gillen immediately being like, Magneto's dead, let's talk about it, in Immortal X-Men, made it feel realer. You know what I mean? It didn't feel like, oh, he's just dead and red. He's dead everywhere. And we're talking about the ethics of it. And amusingly, Charles is already like, I can't I can't bring him back, but there's kind of a, a little undercurrent there that he's thinking about how he can. Which is like both a concern, I don't want that to be like, we've reversed the amazing death of Magneto, but I do think... An attempt that results in a character with Magneto's powers or maybe some of them or whatever it is, an attempt by Charles to do that without fully resurrecting the Magneto that we know and love could be kind of the reverse. Like we saw. God, I hope it's a woman that looks like Moira. That's amazing. I didn't even think of that. But like, I just in general, the idea that Charles can't live without Magneto to the point that he's not willing to honor his glorious sacrifice might be as important a statement about Charles as the death of what Magneto was about him. I don't I don't think he would do that. But that's just me. I personally just do not believe that he would do that to Magneto's memory. Oh, I completely think that he would. But I think that seeing himself as a like leader is the only veneer that kind of keeps his power, him and his like power in check because he could easily just wipe everyone's memory of the fact that Magneto even said that that was a thing. <laughs> Resurrect Magneto and make Magneto forget he said that was a thing. And then he's just like, oh, I'm the only one who knows the truth. It's like, that's very Chuck. That's very Chuck. I had I, to do I, it. I don't like him either. And I think he's unethical. I just don't think he would actually, I do think he actually loves Eric. It's a thing. I, I do too, but I think that's the problem. Like, yeah, love he takes loves any form. <laughs> he loves him so much he can't live without him. <laughs> and if there's nothing I could put past Chuck, I get it. Like, but I'm going to a little more credit today. And, you know, I think that seeing the X-Men advance their understanding of the Krakoan agenda in Immortal X-Men has been a really defining moment for this age. And it's one of the reasons that when everybody was like, John Hickman's leaving, and there were all these rumbles about a big voice coming in, I was so relieved when it was Kieran Gillen. Kevo, I think Immortal X-Men 7 marked your first issue of Immortal X-Men. And, you know, congratulations. You got to see some Lucas Vernick art and, you know, hey, hey, Steve, hey. Mm. I did really like Call the me. Art, yeah. So how did you feel about stepping into the sort of like central title that represented the same thing that Eternals did for the X-Men by Kieran Gillen? It was fun to see things I had already seen from different perspectives, like Steve had pointed out. I had already seen Nightcrawler come and collect Steve Rogers, but I'd never seen the behind the scenes of that. And it answered questions about like how how Steve could possibly come out of that egg. Well, they explain it here. So it's nice that there is that tie. I don't understand anything going on with Moira right now. So any everything with those two pages of him trying to get to her. And that like, sounds amazing. 
I am so envious. Killing Nightcrawl over and over again to get to her. I don't even know why he was trying to get to her. I Nothing from this issue told me what she brought to the table. So that was just a couple of pages that was there. Like, I loved this issue. Like, I, I loved Kieran Gillen's Nightcrawler. Like, it's like a throwback to Nightcrawler that I needed. Like, Furious Nightcrawler is its own creature and creation. But this is like the Nightcrawler I know and love. I did love the little banter between Moira and Crawl Kurt. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, maybe Kurt saw her as a mother. So maybe he's like kind of attracted to Moira. Like when she was a mother figure to him. I don't know. Ooh, no, I, it would be in line with his uh, romantic. Attractions. Uh, that was the best Nightcrawler issue since Hawksbox. I like I've read them all. That's the best one. It is incredible. It was one of the best Nightcrawler issues I've ever read. So as a Nightcrawler fan, I really appreciated it. I appreciated somebody with a great love for the character writing him who like really gets all of his very facets instead of you know just a few at a time which is that's not a commentary on anybody currently that is just true of most writers of Nightcrawler even Claremont in his later appearances but it, it was great to see that like multifaceted character that I loved again and just the issue was very well written it's a it's a little puzzle that the pieces all slowly fit together and you can if you've been reading all the other tie-ins you can see little things where you're like I didn't realize that this happened at this time and you know there was just a lot of a lot of thrilling little bits there and a lot of daring moments of like doing something with a character that may surprise the reader but is still surprising in a way that you're like yeah that's totally a thing nightcrawler would do that is like that is how he thinks this is this these are the things that weigh upon his mind this is the way that his faith impacts his choices in the everyday moment and he doesn't get wrapped up necessarily in his angst so much of his faith as he does use it as like a fuel and a guide path to his thoughts and his his actions and i i think that's really cool i think it's a fantastic issue loved it and you know i completely agree with you all of you because that's what we're saying that nightcrawler is so much more than just like okay because like i'm totally here for alan coming i love him he's adorable but x2 not the defining nightcrawler work <laughs> of all time <laughs> and yeah this hyper simplification because like even beyond that the hyper simplification of anybody into one or two meager tropes that just doesn't feel like the sort of exploration of 60 years of character development that something like the X-Men should represent and seeing Kurt be sort of adventure boy like you know and have like a real sense of daring do I loved that sort of callback to the idea that he is kind of a mischievous elf yeah he's a good guy and he's got the best heart but like he you know he's still the mistletoe boy and like sure I don't necessarily mean that like holding mistletoe above a friend's head to sneak a cute kiss is the same thing as nearly dropping your stepmom to death but <laughs> I, I think there's probably uh, an in-between look he learned and... from his mom it's just yeah family trait she dropped him down a waterfall he dropped his <laughs> stepmom out of the sky kurt, kurt has a lot of toxic family traits it's just true <laughs> kurt had long battles to get back to this swashbuckling carefree character like uh, half of excalibur really seemed like his journey to get you know back to the swashbuckling character uh, and it's really good to see him sort of go back to it kurt thinks of the x-men as family that's why he's so willing to date burn <laughs> Let's talk about somebody who is literally the definition of incestuous X-Men. Hope Summers in this issue is everything I love about Hope. Like, I understand that she is not always written with the greatest ferocity. You know, I really like a sort of so notorious Tory spelling a little bit more than a Donna Martin graduates Tory spelling. Mm. 
incorrect preference. Oh, BH90210 Tori spelling. Thank you. Absolutely. I even think that is a better choice, but we're going to get to this later in another podcast where we rank <laughs> characters from 90210s and other shows. 90210 number ones. So I think this Hope Summers represents something I've really wanted. Hope kind of gets forgotten as like one of the cool kids of the Marvel Universe, but she is kind of one of the cool kids of the Marvel Universe and she's done her dues. And I just think that Gillen coming back in is so terrific because he always had the right kind of hope energy and I'm excited to see what he continues to sort of like Matroshka out of her. These even you know more amazing small details. It's her compassion. It's her warmth. Her intelligence. I don't know. Hope Summers for me just glistens on the page. I think a lot of big X-Men fans sort of look at Hope with a wary eye because she comes from an era that we all are still a little bit hurt from when the mutants were really pushed to the background because they were not their movie rights weren't owned by Marvel and amazing work was done to develop the character of Hope and turn her into the mutant messiah a concept that we've had before with other characters that really never panned out and it just felt like in this era some a bunch of people were really trying to be like this truly is the mutant messiah and then things changed again and the prospects for the mutants really changed and hope kind of got left by the wayside but as of now she still kind of is technically in that role and regardless of whether or not a writer chooses to use her in that way and have her do some great act that ultimately reflects that she is the one mutant messiah the fact that she still feels that way and feels a responsibility and has that moment of just like i will save you it really i i have so much respect from for kieran gillen for being able to turn an idea like this is the mutant messiah into something that matters but doesn't necessarily have to for canonical lore reasons be the specific case that she will one day do like a, a specific plot line act that is messianic she just has to feel that way and do her fucking best that's beautiful and in a lot of ways it's really heartbreaking but i think it is a more honest view of what a messiah in comics kind of needs to be going forward well it's it's such a good take because that's it's a it's more of a social reality that she's a messiah within the context of her society and it's not something that has to be prophetic plot point where we eventually resolve it and deal with it it's something that you know you could simply say this was put on her and she's decided to own it because it helps her be a good leader to her people and that could be all the dealing with it that you need to do aside from you know having these really interesting storylines about zealots and you know worshipers and blasphemy within the society i mean it's it's really it's really neat and i also just love how she's she's really channeling cable here at the end of uh immortal you say i'm your messiah have some damn faith in me that sounds like nathan yes yeah that's exactly like oh yeah cable's your dad for sure up until gillen's been writing hope i really I, i've never been able to come around on the character in the krakoan era like I've, I've seen she's had a great purpose like she really didn't have as much of a chance to shine gillen is doing a good job of moving the character forward on it and through his interactions with hope he's really made me change my mind on exodus like five thousand percent because exodus was a character i was like oh like he was a really horrible racist crusade guy but now i'm like okay like i can look past that i think that that is the kind of magic that kieran gillen brings where he says look i'm not telling you to forgive what he's done i'm asking you to see a bigger picture and that's even kind of the nature of judgment day as a crossover under gillen's 
pen. And that's why it's so interesting that all of these books come together to paint the particular picture that they paint. I find myself sort of surprised that the main narrative, the main book, you know, Judgment Day 1 through 5, isn't always the thing that compels me, but rather it's the thing that I know all of the other books have to react to. Yes. It's almost like it's the news bloops and everything else is us seeing the deeper run of the highlight reel. And I wonder if that's where a lot of the strength of Immortal 7 and especially the Axe one shots really lies. Do you think people will read this series in the future and just read the the Judgment Day issues and like Eve of Judgment maybe and be like, huh, this is a fun, interesting event, but not like delve deeper? I mean, people do that with every crossover, right? Like even as it's coming out and I'm sure undoubtedly there is somebody somewhere who's only reading the Judgment Day issues, which like I wonder what that's like. We've never had easier access to back issues and though the ui could use some work from your mouth to the machine's ears please (laughs) that'll be a very interesting i don't want to say litmus test but i think it'll be something that sort of separates out different types of fans in the future when you have access to everything how important is it going to be to you to go read each individual issue and like who are the people that just kind of want to read the main story and do they feel like they're losing out but it's just too much These events, they wind up so multifaceted and in like a standard Marvel event. I think I had like a, I had a come to the God of the Eternals moment and I passed judgment (laughs) on him and I felt okay about it. I think I've realized that Axe Avengers X-Men Eternals can get away with being so fucking poorly named because it's actually that this group of people are the Avengers and the X-Men and the Eternals. This is all that's left and we're all one unified in in an attempt to survive and the lens we're seeing it through is the lens of sort of the belief system that shaped that group which is why to Tony it's about a calling and a responsibility and a coming together and to Gene it's the Phoenix and it's a holy thing in that regard of the Phoenix and then for the Eternals it's everybody has to disappoint and then not disappoint God over and over I'm not sure what's going on there they have a complex problem with him but well And for Nightcrawler, he's taking it a step further and saying, oh, everyone needs to come together. Everyone needs to come together. And he's going to get Orcus. He's going to get the AI people. You know, he's saying this has to be one team. We can't win if we're on separate sides. And he's doing the novel thing, which is not pulling from the X-Men, not pulling from the Eternals, not pulling from the Avengers, but pulling from the bad guys. Okay, that was the one weird misstep for me because like the X-Men have AI experts. Like, wouldn't you just put Warlock and Doug on it? No, because... Because you need everyone. That's the point. That's Forge. what the progenitor is trying to get Forge. to. Call Forge. I see what you. I see what Jake is saying, and I actually hadn't really thought of it until this moment. But I kind of. I mean, he might be wrong. Like he might be. It might be better to pick Forge or you know to pick Warlock and Doug. But yeah, I get like he's saying like if we are not all in, and it's what Charles did at the beginning when he brought all the like evil mutants onto Krakoa. If we're not all in this together, mm-hmm. we will fail. That's very mm-hmm. interesting, and it's so curt. I do think I totally think he could be wrong, and Orcus might completely fuck them over. Or if Moira is able to remedy the situation in some way, it, there it could leave a 
lot of vulnerabilities that she exploits, but that is the dude that Kurt is and the creator of the spark. Yeah, that makes yeah, total the sense. To wrong all the time, him. and it's fun when he's wrong. He's yeah, he's wrong. But at least, he, at least he's living into his values, and that's to Kurt. That is the center. That is that's what the spark is. Yep. He's leaning into that light. You're totally right about that. That's very interesting. All I'm taking from this is the spark is value city to elf men, and I really <laughs> love that. All I'm taking from this is you guys keep saying things like we're all in this together and what team. <laughs> oh, I am just in a high school musical place. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> we are the Krakoan Wildcats and Emma Frost is the Sharpay we all deserve. That is Steve, Nathan, I know you two didn't have an opportunity to weigh in on Tony Stark's daddy issues, bailing him out. And I can only imagine that there's an opinion there. I really like that issue, actually. I was, I was pleasantly surprised to read an issue about Tony Stark's daddy issues i was like hey you know you know what this is good people can write this story in a way that is interesting and compelling to me after reading almost 60 issues of tony stark's daddy issues over in uh jason aaron's adventures like it it was refreshing to see them come at from a different writer okay like uh is tony stark ever going to be a character that i can care enough about to really care about his daddy issues no but like this was a well-done issue this was presented a, a pretty good story it's you know tony basically alone feeling the weight is being the surviving Avengers on top of surviving Avenger on top of everything else you know there's some really cute rapport with Cersei kind of want him and just Essex to like get together and be like a really shitty couple like but that's just I appreciated the writing on this issue because yes it's it's good writing it's a good fresh take but it's also I mean maybe it's because I'm like almost 37 years old and I've done a lot of work on my own like parental bullshit but like Tony Stark, however old you are, go see a therapist and stop destroying the world with your daddy issues. He's, it's a long tradition of being an original Avenger. We all need to grow from our daddy issues and become our own daddies. And I don't think there's any better description of the Jean Grey issue <laughs> than grow from your birdie issues and be <laughs> your own bird. Be the bird that you want to be in the world. And I, so I've obviously been waiting to talk about this issue. I'm so excited. And my main takeaway, though, like actual, I feel in a weird, interesting way, one of the things that this book has sought to do is add a meta contextual level to a lot of what we're discussing. And I think one of the best examples of that early on was showing, you know, Earth X cap in the cap judgment. I kind of feel like Jean isn't being judged on Jean and she's not being judged on Phoenix. I kind of feel like Jean is being judged on her canon. I sort of feel like they're just kind of looking at her Marvel yeah. fandom no, that's what and they're just is. sort of like every single yeah. thing that could ever be Jean, you want to be Jean Grey, you want to be the most special fucking girl in the room every fucking time, then you have to be okay with always being the one getting the attention. And then you're stuck with all the attention you ever got. And as a Jean Grey fan who loves having all of the attention, I was so respected and disrespected and I felt like my ass was grabbed and also like I was told it was a really good ass in a way that I was really okay with. And it was, it was fulfilling. Well, and you have to be held accountable for everything that you have done. The spotlight will always be on you. That means we can see all of your mistakes and yes. you don't get to justify them. Away. And nobody's saying like you are unforgivable and don't deserve to live, but no, you don't get to make 
make up for them and then they are erased. They will always be with you. You will continue to make other ones. You still have to try and be better. And no, there's no punishment for you that removes the weight of responsibility and the power that you have. You are stuck with all of it. I so, yeah. Well, the celestial is saying you are unforgivable and you don't deserve to live. And that's more the immediate issue that they're facing. But yeah, overall. I think that I think that Jean is like really interesting here where she she seems to be like whether or not I was the phoenix, whether I don't believe I was the phoenix or whether I do believe I was the phoenix, like regardless, I'm still responsible for it and I still have to account for it because other people expect me to. And that was like that was really interesting. I thought that was the heart of the the Jean Grey judgment here is that she's like whether or not I was phoenix, whether or not I did that, whether or not I'm actually responsible for it, I feel responsible for it and everybody else looks at me and I see it in their eyes that they think I'm responsible for it too. So I have to be. And she just like, doesn't see, know what to do with that. I think she wants to be forgiven, but I don't think she deserves to be forgiven. Because what she did, I mean, I think we're at this point in the timeline, in our in our timelines together, where we can say that Jean Grey is the Phoenix, was Dark Phoenix, is whatever. Like that all was the same person. You know, she's absorbed all of the memories. She's got all of the intent. It's all there. And so, I mean, there's, there's no undoing what she did. Even if she went back in time and tried to undo it, there's still a there's still a, a timeline where that still all happened. Like Jean Grey, the Phoenix, destroyed a planet and ate it and ate a star and ate a system. You know, those people are all dead. And you can't change that. You can really only move forward from that. Is she trying so hard because she wants to absolve herself of the sin? Or does she yeah. she's so trying so hard because she wants to do the right thing? And it feels so often like she's trying to try so hard because she wants to absolve herself yes. of, the skin, of the sin. Yeah. It's such a flawed human moment. She, like she, I think she just needed this lesson she just needed somebody to tell her no you're never going to be able to do something that means that nobody will ever look at you and remember when you were dark phoenix you carry this with you and you don't have to do things for the effect of balancing out you have to do good because you know better i think one of the things about gene though is because she is the thing we said to start she's the magical girl more things happen to gene than happen to other people for sure which but that means that then she already has the baseline things that she does because she's trying to do what's right and she's compelled to be the hero. It's the ridiculous crossover stuff she does that's like, okay, you're trying too hard, Jean. Yeah. And I feel like because she is subjected to this bigger-than-life scaling, we sometimes need to apply a bigger-than-life scaling to her. I don't think we can really judge a Storm, a Jean, a Magneto with the same wand that we judge a Hawkeye, I think that they kind of go more in the Thor category as creatures whose very existence necessitates making decisions that cute little Arrow Boy is never going to have to make because that's just not his purview in life. And when we don't acknowledge that Gene is on the same bigger scale as a lot of those other characters, and not us in this room, but kind of like the cultural fandom, I sometimes feel that we are guilty a little bit of continuing to treat her with Marvel Girl gloves when she's very clearly Jean Grey woman. I don't want to judge her at all. I want to, I'm, I'm really focused on that, like, do you girl aspect of it. Like, I want her to know, don't worry about balancing things out. Because you are, you do have such a more complex role to play and you have access to such great power. You don't need to be thinking in this, like, 
tit for tat balance out way you you have to go beyond that so for me it's not about like i judge what you did as dark phoenix and you are bad it's about like it happened you've got to accept that and then you have to marshal your energies to be this godlike being because because you are so you got to deal with it nico when you mentioned like you know storm magneto and jean gray i think the, the big thing between those three characters storm and magneto have all like storm her power set she's had to always think about the consequences of her actions because if she brings rain to one area she takes it away from another one like i think magneto has had the weight of being the leader of mutant kind thrust on for so long he has to always think about the consequences of his actions i think gene goes about doesn't what she thinks always the best but has never really had to have that accountability to face the consequences of all of her actions and her decisions yeah I think that's compounded yeah. by sometimes by the writers who get to write Gene. Like, I don't want to, sure. I don't want to be a bully, but like Tom, just compounded that problem for Gene's character by focusing on Gene so much and then having her like completely not really understand the consequences of anything. Yeah, this feels like a room of Jean Grey fans who love her and want to see her succeed in the world, but you know, also recognize her for her flaws, like a like a sister. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much, like, very, like, like a, a self, like a looking <laughs> at a mirror and being like, "Girl, why did you dye your hair red today? You don't have." enough hair you're just dying your scalp well i think it's become so tough in this fandom to be a gene fan and talk about gene and not have people immediately go to all of these problems and then for you to point out like i was just actually talking about a cool moment or a time where i really liked her i'm not actually saying that she is flawless and unforgivable and like uh, unimpeachable emma frost is also really cool i adore her almost to the same degree no you can only like one exactly (laughs) (laughs) it's insane constant back and forth and i think that's like that's another huge weight in this conversation that we're having that like we couldn't go into it too much because it would be its whole other thing but like we as fans are working with this idea of gene judgment and what is right and wrong about what she has done in her entire history and is it possible to like two people at the same time and think they're both flawed is it possible to like one person and accept that they did a a genocide while they were (laughs) full of the cosmic power of life and death and rebirth and and like also that maybe they did some other really good things for their entire other career. Um, I really liked that we finally got a fix on that. How were humans on Earth a billion years ago? Yeah, finally. Somebody cares about that. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, that was a big hole in my like. And that was a big problem that I had with that Avengers run. I was like, there were not humans on the planet I then. I was okay, like, it's the Marvel were... Universe. I can accept it, except for that this has never been the case in the Marvel Universe previously now. Right. <laughs> so like, right. What the fuck? So we've got a chronal, a chronal disturbance that some humans fell through and populated the planet early. And Ajax killed one of them by rescue. I love that it's dismissed Lovely. immediately. I don't really know what to take from this Ajax issue. And same. I, Total same. I, for one thing, biggest thing, thing I complain about a lot, expectations. Don't know where we're going with the Eternals. Don't know if I need this because I'm going to, to carry this with me because I'm going to get a lot more Eternals in the next in the coming years. And I need to kind of remember this stuff about Ajax. Or if this is just a kind of beautifully rendered tie-up of Eternals business that started with Kieran Gillen's run on that book, but is going to stop when this event ends. I don't know what we are doing here. And you know, Gene and Tony, I feel really confident I'm going to see a bunch of them. And I, the knowledge that I got from those books will inform what I read next. I don't know what's going on with the Eternals. And I, I'm rooting for them. But if they disappear after this event i don't know why i read this we're so conditioned to see people disappear after these events because 
yeah. like what happened with the Inhumans? Like they basically disappeared after IVX because like it was a really shitty event and they were wrong for it. So like fandom's like, haha, you suck. But like, where are the symbiotes? Yeah, where yeah. are all of the Asgardians? Where are the Scrolls? Where are the Infinity Whatevers? It was super wow. cool just for actually getting to see a little bit more inside the mind of Ajax, who we really don't get a lot of internality for until Judgment Day, and she's a character that is so interesting to me. She's such a fucking zealot. She is. <laughs> she is such a fucking zealot, which is always a good character to read, uh, especially when treated with nuance. Like there are moments in this issue where I'm totally on Ajax's side, where I'm like, "Yeah, beat the kill a million gods to get to a good god." Like that's I'm all on your side there. But then the the progenitor is just like, "No, like you you need to understand the difference between having faith in something and being dangerously fanatical." And it is it is always a balance with Ajax. She is mostly a dangerous fanatic, and like is always somebody that is difficult to trust, especially in this event, and will continue to be now. I mean, this sets up the end of Judgment Day as knowing that, you know, Ajax is going to be a loose cannon, a wild card, a free agent for the first time in eternal history. Who knows how that will affect, you know, like we know that she has been very upset about everybody blaspheming against her God constantly throughout the series. She's very upset at the idea of killing the God. She wants the God. She just wants it to be a good one. You know, we don't really know where the story is going. We don't know what the state of the Eternals is going to be at the end of this, if they are even going to be here at all. And I think that also speaks speaks to a lot that we have been saying throughout the episode in terms of even things like we didn't know what this event was going to be going into. We thought it was going to be a war of everyone against the Eternals, and it's completely not at all what uh, the event turned out to be. I wouldn't even call it so much pointless to have read this if now the Eternals are just going to be gone so much as I wish we had been better prepared. And that's where a lot of my reactions are complicated when it comes to this event as a whole. You know, everything, like how I'm supposed to feel about where Jean Grey now feels about herself, how I'm supposed to feel about what just happened with Ajax and her judgment. It's this thing of you feel like you have to hold your breath for an entire month at least before you can know how you feel about the thing you just read. Mm. And emotionally, that's really difficult for me. Like, if this was a large goodbye to the Eternals in some form, that could be a really beautiful story. But I didn't know that was what I was getting. So, like, this entire time, I have not known to emotionally prepare for that. So that kind of gums up the emotional works when you don't know what direction you're supposed to be leaning. And that's really how I felt, like, about Ajax. Is she going to be on Earth's side in the end? Or is she going going to side with the celestial she still could we don't know so i don't know am i supposed to root for her revelation or am i supposed to be like get out of here I'm Nathan. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, you know, having lots of soliloquies, because that's really what we do on Twitter, right? At Dazzler AOA. That's Dazzler AOA. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And that makes me Dame Red Thread for now. I'm slowly changing things up, so keep your eyes out. Hello, it's me, Steve. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. You can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And I hope you survived this experience 
unlike my husband Magneto. So sorry, Magneto, but I'll take care of them while you're gone. So that means we are talking about X-Men Red number seven. And our writer is Al Ewing. Stefano Caselli is our artist. Federico Blee and Bodo Bunker Sujo is our color artist. BC's Ariana Mayer is our letterer and production on this issue. What a fucking issue this is. Before we went into this issue, I was like, uh, maybe, you know, Kieran Gillen will reset the universe after this. And, you know, none of Judgment Day will matter. But if, if this issue with all of the changes gets reset, I'm going to be so mad. There's so much character development. There's so much loss. There's so much tragedy. Iska gets her ass handed to her. I think she actually lost. <laughs> she lost for, like, what, the, the, the third time? She won at losing. <laughs> her power manifesting was the loss of her freedom of choice. Yeah, she lost. I can't lose. Quit repeating the I can't lose. You're choosing to walk away even when you're freaking wrong. You're so wrong. You're like, oh my God, you can't win. You're all going to die. I have to run away now because I can't lose. Oh, look, they didn't all die. They didn't lose. They put down the big bad. Like, fuck you. Iska really feels like Magic Man from Adventure Time here with his like, I win again, just like always. <laughs> I do love this data page about Iska. It gives a little bit more of an insight. And for a second, I actually almost felt bad for her before I realized all the other shit that she's done. But like, it really makes her less of a one-dimensional character. And she is interesting, if anything. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to find out that she's been fucking Tarn this whole time. She was really upset at Bobby, not just for, like, taking advantage of her power, but for killing her lover right in front of her. Like, mm -hmm. and good riddance to bad news. I love Tarn, but, like, fuck you. Dude, like, oh, man. I think Tarn is the one who really pumped up her ego. And that explains why she's up her own ass so freaking much oh my god it's like, it oh really no. helps contextualize the iraq the iraqi eyes yeah. like utter disdain for iska um yeah. you know despite being genesis sister and everything like that like really pulling the context of like she was their jailer she was their torturer she was their oppressor like this is who she was she fell in love with the most vile sinister analog we've ever seen like, I do love to hate him, but oh, the, oh man, that context hits you like a sledgehammer. That is just... It does. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it hit Iska like a sledgehammer, that realization <laughs> of her. Like, I, I, I love that the Fisher King defeats her with no powers just by being like, all right, well, I challenge you to understand the meaning of loss. And she's like, oh no! <laughs> But that's, that's the amazing thing, is that he is an Omega at what he has. He sits in the seat of loss for a freaking reason. And, like, I'm sure that there were seers before that knew that he was going to play a role in their future, and that's why they, you know, put him in the position. But yeah, like, he is the best at what he does, and he has seen nothing but loss and been able to do nothing about it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so good. It's interesting you say that um he doesn't actually sit in the seat of loss magneto does and gives it up to storm sort of storm claims it in this issue but i feel like you're making a really good argument for why he should be in the seat of loss it feels like everything we know about the fisher king is 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 about his loss and honestly arako's as a whole like arako is a place that is like characterized by what they've lost i do have to point out like i think that art on the panel where she's deflated and she's like i understand in the next one where you see the the remaining members of the great ring i'm like oh Oh no, look at Aura Serrata, the poor deflated eye. I know. <laughs> oh, are you feeling bad for Aura Serrata now? 
Yeah, they they all are in rough shape. It's amazing art on that page. Keeping Iska with her look and give like her the colors the colors that are used on Iska to signify her like do make it harder to show some like shadow in the face like shows a lot of expression. But the art does it beautifully here, where she's like, oh fuck. So let's get into the death of Magneto himself. So this issue above all really drove home that relationship between Storm and Magneto. I've always been a really big fan of the Storm and Magneto relationship. I've always seen them. I see them as like close friends, partners, confidants, people who have been enemies in the past, but have they didn't start out that way. Like Storm, unlike Cyclops, is the leader of the X-Men who never like really faced Magneto as like a threat who was like trying to kill her as a teenager. You know, she doesn't have that like age old enemy stuff. They clashed a couple times, but as like equals and peers in the field of like mutant rights, they were both the co-Grey Kings of the Hellfire Club together, and while Magneto was running the school as headmaster, Storm was the leader of the X-Men, so they worked together to train two generations of mutant students and to get them up to where they were. They've just spent a long time together as the two greatest protectors of mutant kind of their day, and they both have a very similar philosophy when it comes to assuring the safety of mutants, whether the world values them or not. And they also both have this, like, you know, like Storm is not just a mutant. She is also a black woman. And that's an important part of her character. And Magneto has never been just a mutant. He's also a Jew and a Jew who survived the Holocaust. And in some in some writings in the 90s, a Roma man. But he's they they both have this like shared like we are mutants, but we have also been hurt by humans outside of being mutants. And that's something we've never forgotten. That's something that's who part of who we are. I absolutely loved the interaction between uh, Eric and, and Oro. Like, it, it summed up their relationship so beautifully. Like, it, it admitted all of the, you know, the faults and the flaws. They started as enemies. They worked in contention. They came to an understanding. They worked together and they brought forward, hopefully, some better mutants than they are. And that's that's a lot and to be able to put that all onto the page uh with eric looking so classic old school magneto and storm looking so wonderfully modern like it's this great encapsulation of their history all in like one shot and i loved it it was so good i love the expression on storm's face in the art where she's crying but also smiling at eric right as uh, she tells him that she can see anya i think that is like my favorite panel in this whole issue of just like sheer perfect art mm -hmm. yeah the emotion in these couple of pages it's so expertly well done. I love that while they are, you know, talking, the artist throws in pictures of Sentinels, you know, just like lording over them. And you're like, oh my God, like throughout everything, like they've always, have it. it's just like, you, you can never forget. They've always been on the verge of being exterminated by somebody else because they don't like they exist throughout their yeah. machine. They're being haunted by this looming image of Sentinels, which I, for a second there, I thought was real. And like my X-Men reader fight or flight response kicked in and I was like, oh no, but... <laughs> 
same. Storm is about to go ham on some sentinels. I really like the uh, speech Magneto's giving there while the sentinels are looming over because I think that's like super important. I think there's a lot of people who will maybe read this and maybe I'm being unkind to readership, but I think there's probably people who will read this as a betrayal of Magneto's ethos of like, oh, he came around to Charles' side and said that humans and mutants should stand together and he's betrayed his ethics or whatever. But I, I, I want to just like make it clear. I think that what Max is saying here is subtly and what Al Ewing is saying here is very cleverly different than that. He's saying that humans and mutants should stand together, but he's not saying like, he's not saying that mutants should stand with their oppressors, the humans. What he's saying is that for any true change to happen, true intersectionality needs to be accomplished. And mutants who are a marginalized class need to ally with other undesirable humans, humans who are outcast from society, other marginalized humans, because they all have one common enemy and it's the powerful humans, the wealthy elite, the people who crush people under the boot of capitalism, who enslave people under colonialism. Like, those are the real enemy. Also the machines. The machines are the real enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely feels like we are seeing a lot of threads being placed for future stories with this almost almost prophetic speech from from Magneto, not yeah. just about the need to align with these like-minded humans, but also being wary of Charles. For me, that I love that Magneto knew that he could go to Storm about this. Uh, I mean, even though Storm has been the staunchest defender of the dream itself, I think, I think it's something that she, if she doesn't fully believe in it now, that's because of what has gone on in life but I, I think for the longest time like she was one of the staunchest defenders of the dream itself you know you she she realized you can't trust any one man that like she would sort of already be predisposed to you know kind of worry about charles but in a way you know she sees krakoa as a whole council i believe like she believes in the government system of it more than most probably and she's you know really trying to give charles the benefit of the doubt he sees her as the best option to take action because of her position on both the quiet council and in the great circle well and i think she's also the most ethical of all Mm -hmm. of them so he knows who he can actually trust and who will make the hard decisions and Mm -hmm. he knows it sure as shit ain't charlie like I think Kate's probably pure at heart ethical than Storm, but I think Storm, the thing that Storm has where that Kate hasn't grown out of yet is Kate is way too idealistic about the way things go, and Storm is a lot more realistic, pragmatic about how life is. Like, she's still got the strong sense of ethics, but she knows that sometimes you have to do what you have to do to get the job done. We do have the progenitor in the background still judging people, and he gives Iska a thumbs up because because I guess she's true to herself. No, she she just can never lose. <laughs> <laughs> she can never lose, but also I, I think that on some level, she also did make the right choice here in not like continuing to ag- antagonize the Iraqi. So like, yeah. in, in this moment, she makes the choice. She understands loss. She understands what she's done and she makes the choice to give it up and walk away. And I think that was the right choice, which is funny because I don't know if Tarn himself would actually give her a thumbs up for that. <laughs> oh, hell no. Oh, Oh, he'd be he'd be calling her the worst things right now. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, no. <laughs> like I think yes, her leaving the seat is the right thing to do. 
but at the same point in time she still doesn't actually understand anything <laughs> like she's like oh i guess i can't lose i'm like bitch you have lost and but you're refusing to understand that you're refusing to understand that you are not infallible you're refusing to understand that you can lose you lost your lover you lost a several wars you only showed up when you were assured that you directly would be you know aggrandized and glorified for being there it's like no 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 she, no i think she understands that she can lose now i think she does understand that i think her saying like even now i can't lose is a bitter irony mm -hmm at the very end yeah it's oh man she's complicated i have very complicated feelings about it like her hubris and her her refusal to admit loss like even before this uh, but i still love it it's so good because it's it's a complex character you know if it was easily cut and dry then it'd be like yeah no you're the bad guy haha ha, go away but like this is it's complicated so it's irritating so it's good my favorite kind of complicated ending for a villain or a villain who was an ally or a villain who may someday be an ally in the x-men stories because this always happens is when they walk away and say i may kill you all yet i just i just <laughs> love it villains are always doing that with the x-men Let's talk about the the fact that the Iraqi council is so afraid. Like they're all so disturbed that the knights are all together and interacting with the Great Ring. I think that it says a great deal about what this event has done to the Iraqi people. That you know the knights have to come out in today, and you know the importance of some Iska abstaining or resigning from the ring, but probably going to have been tried to fought to the death before it. So I think it's cool to finally see who is on the council, although it's mm -hmm. like. I, I like that Bobby is on the council. I like that Beto is on the council, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about yet another Krakoan taking a seat in the Iraqi seat of government when there's still no Iraqi working on the Quiet Council. I, it feels weird and asymmetrical, and it also mm. is a little bit of a letdown because I was kind of expecting that the, the Night Council would be like I don't know some mutants I'd never heard of before that I could like fall in love with. But you know, all, all said, I think it's a it's a move that makes complete sense for Roberto, and so I'm happy with it. And I love Roberto; he's one of my favorite characters. I'm I don't think any Iraqi would want to be on the Quiet Council. And I think I've said this in previous segments. It feels strange that there's so much like Krakoan influence over the Iraqi way of life now. Well, but I feel like it, the mutants that are on the Iraqi council are the mutants that tend to get pushed more towards the edges in regular kind of Krakoan society. Like Beto, he's he's a lovable individual and he likes doing what he does, but he loves to live in the shadows and gather secrets and hold on to little bits and pieces of information. Like he's not as as you know light and love as he tends to make out and he's got a temper on him too like it sort of fits that some of these uh Krakoans are are integrating themselves into Iraqi culture um but I, I think you're right i would like to see more Iraqi interact with Krakoans directly it is nice to see that Beto is living out his dream of being Magnum P.I. So, okay. So that leaves us to probably the biggest change. A storm yielding the seed of all around to Lodos Logos. How do we feel? Like, I personally, I'm just going to say, like, I think it was the right move for Storm to do. I think that always felt kind of weird for, like we've been talking about, for Cohen to sit and rule Araco, his main ruling seat to vote. I'm pretty sure she's still the region of Seoul. I don't think that changed her standing is that she says the regent seat decides the future of this land okay yeah yeah she, yeah. she did take it off of genesis 
whether or not she'll remain the regent of the Saul system or like the ambassador of like Saul to everybody, I don't know. She did yield the control seat for Araco. I just didn't. I didn't know if she re- wielded being the mouthpiece for the mutants in Earth. Yeah, like do do we think that she gave up being the regent of Saul, or do we think that we're just gonna wait to find out? <laughs> I do think it's an extremely Al Ewing move in a very positive way. I mean, to be like, yes, yeah, so the next regent of Araco is going to be the poets and the dreamers we are going to dream up a new future together it is such a deeply alluing thing to write and it is it tickles me and it makes me so happy Mm. that made me so happy radical progress i love this change mostly because when we were first introduced to Rocco, we were just we were told that oh they're all they're all just completely focused on war and that's all they care about but then the more that we read through X-Men Red, we saw that that's not the case. We have all of these these Iraqan citizens who have powers that aren't useful in war. Right. And to have the person in charge, the regent to be one of these non-violence-based powered mutants, it's... It's a huge change, and I'm excited to see how Araco changes as a result of it. Yeah, Ewing has kept a consistent emphasis on the idea that the Iraqi being perceived as warlike or threatening is a trauma response, and it is something that comes from millennia of being in prison and literally literally institutionalized for millennia and growing up in that and living in that and dying in that. But also, like, the Krakoans and us, the readership, all met them during, you know, a bloody multiversal war so like of course that was first impressions but it's it's really nice to see that filled out and say like no this is a society of people of poets and dreamers and artists and thinkers and writers and historians and giant eyeballs with baby bodies on top (laughs) well now more like deflated punching bags how do we feel about the importance of Storm claiming the seat of loss? Obviously, many losses that she's just suffered now. I like it. I like I like that this reflects the deep loss of Magneto, not only to Storm, but to like Krakoa. Like, you know, they've lost their greatest hero. And it. I, I feel like Storm, at least in this moment, is the absolute right person to pick up this. But it does feel temporary. I mean, Storm is not Storm's not necessarily a character who's always been characterized by loss uh, in the way that a lot of other characters have but in this moment of the surviving members of the great ring and given what has just happened in her arms like it is it is profound and it is perfect i don't know that that's a long-term position for storm and she did even say like you know today i sit in the seat of loss tomorrow maybe i'll challenge for one of the dawn seats and i I do think that'll probably happen but i think that a lot of judgment day is about doing what you do in the day here and now not putting it off for later not saying oh i can change tomorrow it's all about what you do in the moment today that counts. And I think that this resonates with that theme in a lot of ways. I love Al Ewing's Cable. I just want to say that like <laughs> in Cable Reloaded was like my favorite Cable comic I've maybe ever read. And it's a single issue. And it's, he's just got such a good grasp of the things that I loved about Cable in the 90s when I was a kid watching him call himself the wild man of Borneo or whatever. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. You don't want to know. I do miss Young Cable, but I'm so excited to see more of Old Cable. 
I'm so interested in seeing where this this one is going because ah, that look on Cable's face is so perfect. The colors, the lettering, the big mm-hmm. uh, just like the the witty writing. It is like a perfect ending of an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was really really well done. 